Good morning, Fret Buzzards. We're excited to be here with you today. Um, I'm here in Virginia Beach. My name is Joe McMurray, and yeah, yeah, I'm Aaron Sefcik. I'm here in wonderful, beautiful, sunny day now, Pennsylvania. I'm at Penn State. Um, yep. Yeah. So today we're going to have a conversation about all things studio. Whether you're a uh, novice musician looking to record for the first time or an experienced musician who spent time in the studio, we hope we can uh, bring to light some cool tips and tricks about the studio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Studios uh, can be kind of daunting to some musicians. Um, I don't know. A lot of people don't know what to expect when they walk into a studio or how to approach the studio. Um, yeah, it, it, and I, t I totally get that. There's, I mean, there's definitely the wow factor depending on which studio, even low-key studios, there's a wow factor walking in. And for everybody, even the experienced people, as soon as that red light goes on, man, there's just something that happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. your nerves just go, oh, the red light's on. <laughs> even though really it should be way less nerve-wracking than than a live performance because if you mess up you can just do it again yeah yeah you know i mean i'd like to say it comes from the the old days when you know tape and you you had to get it the first time but those days are gone man i mean you have virtual tracks and you could do literally hundreds and hundreds of takes yeah. uh, so but it there's something about as soon as that recording as soon as you know that somebody's recording it's I don't know. It's some kind of psychological thing where you, you just have to get it down. <laughs> it's weird. Mm -hmm. Very weird. Often, often times I, I just won't tell people I'm recording. Ah, uh, that's a great way to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, as soon as, as soon as I'm ready, I'm recording. I don't have, I don't actually wait for the artist and say, okay, and ready go. Cause that just kind of brings on this whole thing. I just usually, as soon as it's, it's as I'm ready to go, I'm recording. You can always edit post. Yeah, sometimes if they do a, a warm-up take that's really good, then you'd already have it. Yeah. Yeah, and oftentimes that first take is, is very raw and very real. So you want to capture that as well. Oh, man. So you, um, you've spent a lot of time in the studio recording. Aaron, do you want to tell us kind of how you got started? Oh. Um, doing more of the technical recording side as opposed to um performing more um well uh, in terms of me recording i don't really know where i got the bug um i was at an early age probably the first time i went into the recording studio with my very first real band uh winter long uh we went into a recording studio and um we recorded to adat uh, and I really enjoyed the process. I thought it was very cool. I uh, kind of started to understand multi-track and how it went together, how, you know, the first the drums come in and then you put the bass and the guitars and then vocals and you add all the extra little fine details at the end. Uh, or you could do it live. That's, that's always an option as well. Um, but for me, I think that sparked the whole recording process for me and how interesting it was not too long after that i was about 18 at the time uh, and about three years later at 21 i decided that i wanted to go to recording school uh, i went to 
the recording workshop in Chillicothe, Ohio, um, and studied there. I really, 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 really enjoyed the process. It was intensive. It was all the time. Um, and it, it really sat with me for a long time. So much, though, that I had reoccurring dreams over and over and over about this place. So back in, I think about five, six years later, I went back. I went back again and got recertified just because I enjoyed the process so much that I wanted to do it again. I wanted to go through the whole process again and enjoy that whole journey again. Yeah. Um, it was fun. And I, I liked being a part of that process. I liked being able to have bands come in and, and record them and learn new techniques and, and honestly hang out with other audio engineers. <laughs> that was just enjoyable. Um, so yeah, that was my, that was how I kind of got into it. And then ever since then, um, I've just been recording in my own ways, whether that's in my own home studio or whether it's at, the place where I work there, I actually work in a studio there um, and record bands, whether it's voiceover or jazz bands or rock bands or whatever it is. Uh, I've just always been involved since then. Um, the whole thing is just, I find it fascinating, no matter what it is. Sound, sound to me is uh, always been a fascinating thing. I like the way acoustics work. I like the way that we capture sound. And I like the way that we reproduce sound. That whole thing is just like, I love it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh man, I, I remember when I first got into it with you, I had done a little bit of studio, I had like one or two sessions as the musician performing in the studio. And I remember you starting to break down, you know, show me how to actually plug in mics and there was a snake through the wall and yep. how to actually pull it up on pro tools and you know, the whole process. Yeah. I remember, I mean, I remember being there with you until like two in the morning and you know, getting in, you had a diagram that you drew out for me that I, I had <laughs> for a long time. I don't know where it went, but um, yeah, I, I had no idea that you went to um, get a technical certification. Yep. Twice. Did you feel like in the five or six years, did were there any changes to the process just based oh, yeah, very on much so. technology? I mean, that's the one thing because it is based off of technology. I mean, the very first time that I went, we were working with ADATs. We were working with two-inch tape. Um, oh, and, yeah. and Pro Tools had uh, was out, but it was the very beginning of Pro Tools. Um, before I had Pro Tools, I had something called Cool Edit Pro. Um, so it was definitely the beginning of it five, six years later, you can obviously imagine that the whole landscape had changed technology wise. Mm -hmm. Um, things were more available. They were cheaper. There were more programs. They were more powerful at that time. And even since then, now it's, it's the same. It's even more powerful than it was. And it will be the same thing even two years from now. Uh, the stuff that came out last year was going to be outdated. Uh, but that's not to say that, because I, I do know that there are plenty of people out there who, once they learn their program, be it Pro Tools or Reaper or um, Ableton Live or whatever it is, whatever your 
whatever your DAW of choice is, your digital audio workstation of choice is, um, we tend to stick with them. And because of compatibility issues and upgrading, uh, we have also a tendency to just stick with that version. Uh, I know there are some people who work on 7.4 still. There's some people who work on uh, Pro Tools 8. Um, Isn't that what you had it? You had at the studio when I was there. Yep, we were there. Ten, and ten was out at that point. Yep, yep. Because all yep. the all the plugins that you had only worked with eight. Eight. And if you right. would upgrade, skip over nine to ten, you would have not only had to get the new license, but then rebuy all the plugins. Right. Yeah. Correct. Um, I'm be very I'm, expensive. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and uh, I'm a firm believer in stock plugins um it's nice to be able to have as many plugins as you can get your hands on um but i firmly believe that you can take your stock plugins and make a beautiful album because ultimately with recording it comes down to the source it comes down to the fingers it comes down to the hands and the drummer and how he hits the cymbals and mm -hmm. comes down to the actual drum, the actual cymbals and, you know, the heads on those drums, are they a year old? <laughs> yeah. They have div divots in them that are like that deep, <laughs> yeah. you know, no, you want to, you want to make sure that when you actually go into the studio that you're using, you know, fresh strings, you're using fresh heads, uh, everything's tuned perfectly. Uh, so it always comes down to the source. You can't, you cannot fix, <laughs> as they say, you can't polish a turd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can help. You can make it, you can make it shiny, but. Right. But it's, it's still a turd. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to the source and, and making sure that when you record that it's, that it's perfect. Uh, so that way. You know, when it does come to time to mixing, which we'll talk about in a later episode, um, that you really don't have to do all that much. Uh, everything has been taken care of in the recording stage. That's really where it's at. Uh, anybody who looks at mixing as the, the fix it in the mix, as they say, is a terrible way to go. Um, if it's not recorded right the first time, don't just be like, ah, yeah, we'll take care of it later. No, 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 no. Spend your time on the front end and take care of everything right up front. Just make sure that everything's recorded the way you want it. That way, later on, there's not a lot of work to do. You don't have to worry about hitting EQs and plugins and compression and all that other stuff. It, 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 it's taken care of. It makes the life of the mixing process so much easier, and especially the, the mastering process as well. And that can end up being much more economic for you to fix it in the first place. Oh I've, wa I've watched my engineer try to fix something early on, trying to fix something in like my guitar solo. And it, I, mean, I don't know if we spent an hour trying to fix some little thing and I could have just recorded it. Yeah. But at the time I didn't, I didn't know. So, you know, that would it, if it was $50 or $60 per hour for the studio, it was, it was a poor choice economically for me. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And you know, and, I mean, sometimes you get caught up in the moment, really. Yeah, I mean, you might just love your take and you don't want to 
do another one. Well, and I hear that I've definitely been, I've been in that position, but oftentimes you shouldn't be married to your take because the next one could be just as good. Yeah. Um, if not better. Yeah, if you can do it once, you can probably do it again. Yeah. Sometimes and singing, it gets tricky if your voice is getting, getting yeah, tired. Yeah, vocals is a totally different animal. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. you want, you have a very short time where your voice is actually going to be okay to use. Then, um, once you start you fatigued. Getting, what's that? You get fatigued. You get fatigued and, and, uh, you can start doing damage. Oh, yeah. I, for me, going in the studio, like when I've recorded songs, I typically I'll do a vocal warm up, but then I'll start singing, you know, whether it's the first verse, whatever comes first. By the time I get to the end, my voice is much more warmed up and then I go and redo that first that first part because I can hear the difference as it goes. But then, you know, then it starts to fall off. I start to get hoarse. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's a flow to it. You kind of, at first, it kind of sometimes feels a little stiff, and you're trying to work out all the kinks. And by the third or fourth pass, it's, um, you kind of get that flow. You're like, yeah, that, okay, yeah. I'm starting to understand where I'm, where I'm trying to get to, you know? Um, yeah, the vocals, the vocals can be tricky, that's for sure. So I want to go back, I want to rewind a little bit to yeah. um, the actual process of preparing to go into the studio um you know we're talking about actually being in the studio um a few things that i've really picked up along the way are the fact that you need to be extremely prepared going into the studio i mean the studio is not a very economical way to figure out your song no you know if you're paying per hour and you go in and you don't have the song hundred percent you're wasting money and you're potentially you're potentially hurting the the outcome of the song so like drums are harder to to fix in the mix you know if you go in and you've got the whole song laid out nicely and you do a nice drum take and you don't have you know it's not chopped together you know that makes a big difference and just you know know your part know your part before you get there yeah you know practice it's nice to have played a song live at least several times before you go into the studio because sometimes you the song changes from a live performance. You find out what people like and you might figure out a, a better way to play a part. Yeah. So be as prepared as possible. Memorize your parts if possible, unless you've got like a, a large score or something. But a typical rock song or a jazz tune, the more, you know, if you've memorized it, and even then, if you put the the chart in front of you or the lyrics, at least then it's you've got a you're gonna know it a lot better. Yeah, yeah. Usually, what I try to tell any any person before they, I usually have pre production. I'll sit down with a client and talk about what their vision is or where they want to get to. Uh, and the very first thing that I try to have anybody do is have some kind of lead sheet, something. That way, I know and they know that they're prepared on a song basis. The overall idea of, okay, here is the skeleton. This is what's supposed to happen. Uh, that way, you can also give it to the engineer, and they, they can see what's going to happen. 
Um, if there are any changes that need to, to kind of take place, you guys can talk about that and maybe change a measure here or switch some stuff around arrangement-wise. If you want to go that route, obviously, now you're getting into more of the producer end of things. But, yeah, um, the more that they can have it planned out, the smoother things will go in the studio for the band and for the engineer. Um, extremely good for the band because that brings up when you start changing things around and start messing with people's parts, there happens to be a little bit of tension and you don't want to bring that into the recording process. The recording process should be something that's fun, enjoyable, um, energetic, you know, you want to feel that energy within the band because that's going to tape and you're going to feel that, that, that absolutely 100% transfers to tape. <laughs> so you want to have that camaraderie. You want to have that good time. Um, whereas, like I said, if, if you don't have any of that, that does bring in this tension. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes you want to have tension depending on the band. Um, I mean, we're all kind of talking about this on a, not amateur, but amateur and intermediate level. Some of the more professional bands, they'll have a label which will pay you to go into a studio and spend time to sit with a producer and write your parts and go through that whole process, which if you ask any band that's done that, is a very painstaking process. The faster that they can get in and out of the studio, the happier, happier everybody is. I mean, it just seems to be the, the norm. <laughs> Spending months in a studio can get quite, ooh, it's, it's... And especially if you have all the members there at the same time, that can even be even more of a headache. Yeah, it can get, you know, if a couple people are working on it. I don't know, it can just, you can get tired and then... The, the song doesn't come out like it's it would have if it came up naturally in rehearsals and yeah um, yeah and it depends on what your goal is i mean i it, you know how how do you want to approach this album how do you do you want it more to be organic or do you want it to be more you know planned out and methodical and uh and it also depends on the album you know is it your first album is it the first time you're going in and because Generally, um, the first album is planned out. It is written ahead of time. It has um, somebody who's been working, maybe the guitarist who's ever written all the parts, has been working on it for years, you know, like, man, I finally got the band together and we're, you know, we got the songs and we've been practicing them for years now. Awesome. Let's go into the studio and let's do this. Your third, your second and your third album, they tend not to have that. That's all new material, uh, and that's a whole different process. Uh, so maybe there's one or two songs left over from the previous stuff, but most of it's going to be, you know, Joey over here or Sam over here wants to have a couple of stuff that they want to throw in and whatever it is. They have new writers, or maybe we lost a member and we've got a new member or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, so bands are each album is going to be approached a little bit differently. And it also depends on the direction of the sound that you guys want to go. Some bands want to keep the same sound and some bands don't. Some bands, we've talked about this in the past. You know, maybe you want to redevelop, you know, 
redevelop yourself, make make a new sound, whatever it is. Yeah, you're ab- absolutely right. I I'm thinking back to my first Albino Rhino album. We had we gigged with those songs for a couple of years mm-hmm. before going into the studio. Um, and they took it took much longer. We didn't know what we were doing in the studio very much, and yeah, so it it goes more smoothly later if you have the songs planned out. But it like you actually you're you understand the process of the studio better, but your songs aren't as well rehearsed at that point. Right, right. But yeah, hmm. not that that's a good thing or a bad thing. It just it is. You have to be you have to be conscious of, of all of that. You have to kind of remember and honestly be be honest with yourself uh, with you know, what the end product is going to be, and that's that's another thing. As I was as a recording um, engineer, you have to go into the studio because the very first thing an engineer is going to ask you is either a what do you want this to sound like or can you give me three to five reference tracks of what you think this album is going to sound like? Do you want this to sound like Chili Peppers? Do you want this to sound like... Because he has no idea. He has no idea what your sound is, and you should not expect him to know what your sound is. That's, that's not a good way to approach your album. You need to do your homework, and you need to make sure that you're letting whoever is taking care of your baby... This is... You're spending lots of money on this. You've spent lots of time on this. And you want to do your homework and let the person who is going to be crafting it and putting it out on the other side, you want to let them know as much as you can. That is your job as a band. That's so important. <laughs> and and let's, let's dive in here a little bit more. The... It's not like you need them to understand what your song sounds like harmonically or that sort of thing. It's like, what's the production that you want at the end? Right. You know, like, is there a drummer that you love the sound of a snare drum? You know, it's, I've, I remember telling my, my engineer, like, I really like the sound of the snare drum on the album, on this album from this band. Like, can we get that? And, you know, a lot of that is... You know, his first question is, well, what kind of snare is your drummer using? You know, but then after that, you can help shape that sound depending on the microphone that you use mm-hmm. and then the way that you EQ and, you know, the settings that you put on that snare drum. So well, I've found success in telling my my engineer that I want certain elements of this track to sound like elements from these tr- reference tracks. And he's able to... You know, if you tell them that him that up front, he can choose the proper mic, and then in the mixing stages, he can set the levels and the EQ correctly. Right. Or he can give you the advice, the advice of that may not work. Yeah, we, yeah. We can try it, but you have to be aware that the engineer knows sound and has worked on. Hopefully, because you chose that person. They've worked on many albums and they know how to create sound. And that's the, that's a, that is one other thing that I want to kind of bring up is, is that be aware and do your homework when you go to a, an engineer, a mixer, 
that you actually listen to their past stuff. You listen to their catalog. Because if you just randomly pick somebody for their studio, which is kind of what people do, <laughs> ooh, that's a pretty studio, I'm going to go there, um, maybe mix it somewhere else or not. You have to realize that the person who's going to be mixing your album has a specific sound, and you are going to them for that specific sound. You don't want to go to Joe Schmo over here and expect him to sound like Chris Lord Algae. You know, that, it's just not going to happen. Chris Lord Algae sounds like Chris Lord Algae. I mean, that's, you're not, you can't, you can't expect one engineer to sound like another. You can kind of tinker and play with it, but you're better off going to that sound engineer expecting their sound. That's what they're best at. That's, that's them. It's like going to you as a band and saying, I want you to sound like Megadeth. And you're like, but I don't play Megadeth. <laughs> I'm a country artist. <laughs> that's it's, a great point. It's, it's ridiculous. You need to make sure that when you're going to that specific person, you're done your homework. You know what their sounds, you know, what they bring to an album. And that's sought after. Ooh, I like the way you produced that last album. That's mm-hmm. awesome. I want you to do that to ours. That's a, that's a great point. And sometimes it's more than just their sound in the end. It's the things that they bring to the table during the recording process. Like some of the best engineers I've worked with have had suggestions in the midst of, you know, you're recording and he's you're, you've told him the sound that you want. And you're doing a take and he's he's honest with you, like, we're not getting the sound. Try this other guitar that I have in the studio. Try this other amp. Set yeah. your amp differently. You know, they're like a coach in there, like giving you point. I mean, it's been very helpful when I've had engineers that are very active in the process, like giving you maybe try this, maybe try that. It mm-hmm. it's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the other thing is, is don't be married to your equipment. Uh, I know there are a lot of people who are like, no, this is this is my amp. I'm going to play through my guitar. And you're like, but as an engineer in a recording studio, and that, you have to understand that we're looking for a sonic space. And we're going to fill that sonic space as best we can on an album. Mm-hmm. Recording studio is not the same as a live show. <laughs> Your live show, which you you as the artist have done hundreds of times on stage, you've got that honed in. That sounds awesome, you know. And depending on each venue, which has a different space, and you kind of, like we have talked about in the past in the past episodes on our earlier episodes, you know, each space is going to sound different, and you have to kind of play around with it and get the best of that. But when you're in a recording studio, a controlled environment, and it's going to tape. That's completely different because the sound engineer knows his space. He knows his equipment. Um, and if there's something that's, like you said, just not working, he's going to suggest something. And you, the artist, are better off on taking his advice because the end result is something that is going to be so much better for you. It's just important to be able to say, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a mess player. 
well, okay, we'll try that, Marshall, because on the album, it may actually sound better, or I'm a, I'm a Jackson player. Well, try that Ibanez, you know, see if, see if it's got a better sound to it. It might have a tone that might cut through the Jackson. Okay, yes, let's use your Jackson over here on the right side, but mm-hmm. you know, let's use an Ibanez over here, or you, let's use a Tele over here, or just kind of get that contrast going so you do have that sonic space that's filled. You, that's extremely important that all musicians, be it, like I said, drummers or guitarists or bassists or whatever, that you go into it with this open mind of, this is a toy store, and I get to play with a bunch of stuff. <laughs> like, I have my, my favorite setup to use for live performance. I mean, I love my semi-hollow ES335, and I love my amp, but... Part of what I love about what I my equipment is its versatility, where I can go to almost any show and I can pull off different genres of songs back to back. But in the studio, I don't need versatility. I want to use the right tool for the right job. Right. You know, I don't want to try to hammer in a nail with a screwdriver. If the song calls for a single coil tele sound, I need to use that. Right. If the song needs some beef to it, like don't be tied to your Telecaster. Pull out the Les Paul, pull out something with some balls behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, having an engineer that has some other equipment for to use is that's really nice to have. It's not necessary, but it definitely can uh, add to this, the sound in the end, some things that you never thought would happen (laughs) can come out. Yeah. And likely if he has that equipment, he can probably hopefully, he knows when to use it. Yeah. And, and if you don't have an engineer who doesn't have a lot of stuff, um, usually those are the engineers who are the most creative and they're going to try different things, you know, well, let's, let's go to the bathroom and let's mm-hmm. try to mic up a, a guitar amp in the, in the tub <laughs> or yeah. do some vocals in the tub or whatever it is. Uh, those that that's, that's extremely important to try to kind of create and, try different environments and have fun with it. So that, that reminds me of, so my mom's from the Detroit area. And so we go up there every, every year or two. And um, we went to the Motown museum a couple of years ago, yeah. and, which is a really cool museum. And it has the old studio there. It's in like a, a row house. Um, and they actually did record the vocals. They had a vocal chamber that was essentially like a bathroom. Yeah. And in order to get that, because, you know, everybody says you sound better singing in the bathroom. Well, it has to do with the the reverb of your voice bouncing off the tiles. So they actually built one and they took the ceiling tile off and they, they built this big chamber. And it's yeah. just, it's, it's funny how much the space you're in and, the distance of the mic, the type of mic, the distance from the mic, the there's so many factors that change the end sound where you might not even need to change guitars or amps yeah. or your voice or whatever. Maybe we should talk about mics and, and some of the, the technical aspects of it, of recording a song. Yeah. I mean, that's like I said before, that's, that's what it's all about in terms of, Getting it right at the source. That's that's extremely important of how you, yes, your player has got to be on top of it. They have to know what they're doing. they got to 
Um, if you have a sloppy player, you have a sloppy player. It doesn't matter if they're playing for a $3,000 Gibson or whatever. They're, they're a sloppy player. Um, but beyond the source, then it's actually the very first thing that hits the chain is going to be your microphone. Uh, and there, there are hundreds of microphones out there. Um, but it's important that you know, for all the home recording people out there, that mm-hmm. you know your microphone and what is to be expected out of that microphone. You have the three different kinds of microphones uh, and, their, and their purposes. Um, you have your dynamics, which are one of the most popular. Uh, the most popular dynamic microphone that's out there in the world is the SM57 by Shure. Uh, cost about ninety bucks. You'd say the fifty-seven is more popular than the fifty-eight. Uh, for recording, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's essentially the same. It's the same components with a different grill. Yeah, absolutely. The fifty-eight and the fifty-seven are like by far the most used microphones anywhere. Um, but yeah, it's funny that I have a, I have a couple of fifty-eights that I I use, and uh, Guitar Center just had a a big sale, and the Sennheiser. E nine forty five was like a hundred bucks off. So oh. it was down to like a hundred dollars. It was crazy. By the time I got there, they were all they were sold out. Huh. Frustrating. But they had the demo one, and if you actually listen to the difference, the fifty eight's a great mic. Like I've been using it for a long time. Yeah, SM fifty eight. But I mean, if you compare a sure SM fifty eight to an SM fifty eight beta, the output of the beta is a lot higher like it's got a lot more um it's just louder essentially i mean i know it has different i think it's more clear as you get closer so it doesn't get woofy that right. kind of deep sound that, that you can't really tell what the person's saying the sennheiser was actually it was definitely louder like the 58 beta but also had a it was very clear it was a really mm. clear mic yeah but anyway you know oh, well tangent. Every mic has, and I, and it's funny, um, on the podcast forums, there's always these questions about microphones and what they're used for and how to use them and condenser versus dynamic. And I guess I, I should say that we have the three different yeah. microphones. We have a dynamic condenser and a ribbon. Um, mm-hmm. the, um, like I said, the dynamics are used for exactly what they sound like. Dynamic um, instruments where you have loud sound pressure. Uh, things like drums or guitar amplifiers or saxophone or horns or something. That's, anything that's going to be really, 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 really abrasive and very upfront and very aggressive. Those are great for uh, dynamic microphones. And they're great for live situations. Absolutely. They're very directional. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't pick up a wide, a wide path. They're, um, they're more directional and straight towards something. That's why live, they're, they're wonderful to use. Yeah, if you're standing there singing, it's not picking up the sound of the drums so much. It's just getting capturing your voice mostly, Yeah, ideally. Yeah. And there's no one microphone that is better than the other that's extremely un like you absolutely as any artist or musician 
you need to be aware of is that no one microphone is better than the other. It's only dependent upon the situation. Phil Anselmo of Pantera used, I think, he, think, I think he, I'm pretty sure he used a 58. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. Like, you can, sure, you can use these really, you know, a U87. Sure, you can use a $2,000, $3,000 microphone. But that's not going to guarantee you that you have the best sound. You can use a Neumann. You can use a, whatever it does. It doesn't matter. If I have a shootout with seven different microphones, there are tons of these shootouts on YouTube, and you can watch them, where they'll have seven, eight different kinds of microphones, and they'll, the person will go up to every single one, and he'll say something, and it's different for every single microphone. And that's yeah, like the, the natural EQ, you mean. And absolutely. I'll- and depending on the person, you will find your microphone that sounds best to you because what sounds best to you may not sound best for me at all in any way whatsoever. And that's why I tell usually vocalists to try out many different microphones. And once you find one, buy one and, you, and, and carry it with you for the rest of your life. That's the, that's the one thing that's going to be uh, your instrument. Just like I have my Strat, that's your, my, that's, that's your instrument, man. That's, that's something that you're going to carry with you no matter where you go. That way when you get up on stage or go to any studio, You've done your research. This is the one that fits my voice the best, mm-hmm. mainly because of the frequency response. With every microphone, you get a chart that shows you from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, which is what human hearing can hear. And within that range of vocals, usually from around and there's debate about this. I've had arguments with people, but I'm just going to say for whatever reason, I'm going to say 400 hertz to around 5,000 kilohertz. So that's a huge range. But within that range, you're going to have divots and, and peaks where mm-hmm. that, that microphone responds the best to those specific frequencies. Mm-hmm. So, As you can hear, Joe's got a little bit of a deep voice. My voice is also deep, but it's deeper in a different way. Same thing with Tony. Tony has a a deep voice as well, but his highs hit a little bit differently than mine or Joe's do. So Mm -hmm. there are certain frequencies that with S's and P's and and sounds and T's and all those, they're going to come off our lip or our tongue differently. And those microphones, whatever one it is, is going to pick each one of those up differently and accentuate them or decrease and and not show those as much. And you have to go through that process of finding which microphone for your vocal sounds the best. And that also goes for guitars, drums, bass, keys, triangles, whatever it is. Mm Mm-hmm. That process of going through and, and, and finding out what works best for that specific project is, that's, that's next to the source, 
that's the most important part. Yeah, it's funny. It's I mean, all this is absolutely true, and it's important to know. And in a professional studio, hopefully, you're going through this process. But I will say, in the end, if you, you know, whether you have a, a blue baby bottle, whatever, you can still EQ your voice or your instrument in other ways. Oh yeah, you, know, you can use, like you said, an SM58 to cat or an SM57 to capture the sound, and you can shape it some afterwards. But it is best to get the best sound from the source. Yes. If it never picked up the frequencies that you want, it's harder to pull them out. Um, yep. Yep. It, it, like I said in the beginning, it's, it's, it's better to go into it having tracked it the right way and less work on the, on the back end and mm-hmm. try to do all of that mixing. Yeah. So that we've been talking, we were talking about dynamic mics, like mm-hmm. the Shure SM58, SM57, the Sennheiser E945 and the E935. There's lots of dynamic vocal mics out there. Um, Now, what I have in front of me, this is a condenser mic. So this is a totally different... Inside this, the electrical components and magnetic components are completely different from those of a dynamic mic. Um, So in the end, it, it offers... I think a, a clear, um, yep. more like perfect representation of what it's hearing or what you're producing mm-hmm. at the source. Um, so these are great for studio applications, um, you know, especially for singing um, yep. and other things because they are, it's a more accurate representation. Um, it can pick up some of the intricacies of your voice a little bit better. Yeah. Um, they are, a little bit, they are a little bit brighter. Uh, mm-hmm. Dynamics tend to be a little bit duller. Um, they are a little bit more clear. Um, you definitely don't want to put them up close to a source. You want to kind of pull them back so they get an overall sound. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's, that's kind of their characteristic. Yeah. Yeah, and these guys tend to be a bit more expensive um, than a dynamic mic. Um, they make they make some cheaper ones, but yeah, and they require forty eight uh, volts of power or phantom power to power them, uh, whereas a dynamic yeah. doesn't require any. Uh, they also there's a, cop, a popular thing out there right now called a cloud lifter. Uh, you cannot use a cloud lifter with a condenser microphone. You can only use a cloud lifter with a dynamic microphone. So what is a cloud lifter? It takes the signal and boosts it. Oh, okay. It yeah. boosts it, like it's coming from my voice into the microphone, and it boosts it somewhere in the microphone, or is it somewhere in your preamp? Um, okay. Yeah, you you can because you if you you will find that on a preamp, you will generally have to take a dynamic mic and just crank it on your preamp to get any juice out of it. Yeah. Um, but with a cloud lifter, that you can that you can go to like nine o'clock, and all of a sudden you have. You're like, whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a lot of headroom. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of headroom, um, you know, you're speaking, you're speaking into your microphone or singing or playing guitar into it. That signal is then going through your XLR cable or whatever it is to your um, to your interface, your audio interface. So 
that point, if you've got your settings, like setting up, getting the settings right in the first place is, is crucial. If you, if you've got too loud of a signal and your mic is clipping your entire, you can't get rid of that. Like it is unfixable. No. Yeah, absolutely. You want to make sure that your gain staging is correct. That when you're going into uh, any piece of software or any, any preamp that you are bringing the signal in at a correct level um, before in the old days with tape, uh, you wanted to get as close to redlining as possible uh, to give that saturation on the tape. Uh, sometimes it was even preferred to get a little bit of clip clipping uh, because it had a certain sound. Now with digital, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's better actually to record at a lower volume and in post on mixing, you can always bring it up. Um, but once you actually digitally clip, it sounds like crap. Um, so going into any preamp nowadays, you just want to generally, generally record low. Um, yeah, it's, it, there's no advantage at all. Yeah, you kind of have to find your loudest part of the song and make sure that that highest point doesn't doesn't clip. Right. I mean, then stay, give yourself a factor of safety under that. Yeah. And I definitely, I, in my own, you know, home recordings and my like me, without having an engineer there, I have definitely messed up a couple takes. Like, great take, my loudest note clipped. It's yeah. just unusable. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not really savable. Um, you can, there are some tricks that you can do, but it's never really going to have the same effect or same sound. It's just not, you want to retake it and get it so it doesn't clip. And yeah. I, know, I know that we jumped right into pre, uh, preamps and whatnot like that. The one thing I do want to uh, bring up real quick, I should get into it a little bit more, but go back, go back to the microphone and the source. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, we do have dynamics condensers and ribbons ribbons are a, a smoother sound uh, plus they actually do have a little tiny ribbon in them that can break um, they're getting a little bit more uh, popular nowadays I know that they're starting to come out with more that are a little bit more accessible um, they also come most usually they come with an external transformer that powers them uh, they actually started making a couple now that don't have the external transformer um, so they're coming to be a little bit more accessible which is nice uh, so we do have the three different kinds, but we also have five different polar patterns on every single microphone. Um, and those are also extremely important to know. Um, we can get into those on a later date if we want to, but I just want to make sure that everybody also knows that to the three, there's five. Um, mm -hmm. Five different polar patterns, which means that we pick up a different um a different angle of how much we're actually intaking into the microphone. So a cardioid or something like a high, super hypercardioid or an omni, which is everything, uh, the figure eight, which is side to side. Uh, so we have different kinds of, of different polar patterns that pick up areas of that microphone. And the other thing that I also wanted to bring up before we get into preamps is um, your XLRs and 
the importance of getting a decent quality XLR and making sure that the shielding in that XLR is at a good quality. Um, if you are recording and you are running an XLR across any electrical line, make sure that that is going this way and not against it and laying with it because it will pick up something called 60 cycle hum and that will be pulled into your recording. You just need to make sure that you're aware that any electrical lines are always crossed and not going parallel. Uh, that's extremely important. If you have decent quality uh, XLR cables, Mogami or anything like this, um, the shielding on those is really good and it keeps all out, keeps all those RF signals out. So just be aware of that. The crappier the, the cables do make a difference. That's that's that's. I just want to say that. <laughs> yeah. So go back to the ribbon mic. Um, I've used ribbon mic in recording horns before, but where would you say? What are the specific situations where it might be great to use a ribbon mic? That might be the best choice of the three types. Of um, they're kind of like I look at ribbon mics kind of like a dynamic. Um, you're specifically looking for that smooth sound. They have a rounded sound to them. They take all the harshness off. They've got a really warm kind of tone to them. So yeah, something like brass, brass would be really good. Um, uh, you could try them on drums. I don't know that you're going to get a whole lot of brightness out of them. Mm -hmm. um, just be aware that with ribbons, you do get that nice warm sound. Um, it's like a dynamic, but different characteristic. It's got a different kind of feel to it. Well, there you go. It's, <laughs> it's like what we were saying about, you know, with vocal mics, you know, you have to try each one and they're all going to sound a little different. Yeah. I mean, if you're really interested in terms of uh, any of these microphones, you can always YouTube any shootout uh, between microphones um, and you'll kind of get a good idea as to how they differ. Um, whether, again, it's a different microphone or if it's a different polar pattern or if it's a different uh, type in terms of, you know, condenser, dynamic, or ribbon. Um, just kind of getting an idea of how they respond. And then if you do want to try out a microphone most places will rent them out and you can kind of get an idea whether or not you like a sound or not and you know you don't have to buy it you can just rent it for a day and, and play around with it or you know look hook up your local buddy and say hey man i'm i'm looking to buy something is you have one could i try it out for a little bit most oftentimes people will be like yeah absolutely 100 percent um, so let, let's go, let's follow our, our yeah. signal chain down a little farther. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've talked about coming from the source into the microphone, mm -hmm. XLR actually matters having good shielding yep. and making sure it's not crossing electrical lines improperly. Yep. Yep. The next step in the chain is that electrical signal is going into your audio interface. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm using a focus, right? 2i2 um, but essentially you need something to turn your electrical signal into 
a digital signal. A to D, D to A. Yeah, so, yes. So, you know, they make all different, you know, you can get something for a hundred bucks. Um, as you get more expensive, hopefully what you're getting is, aside from having more inputs and that sort of thing, hopefully the preamps are better. They have a better quality to them. And Aaron, do you want to, I remember you explaining this to me a long time ago, just the difference between a crappy preamp and a nice preamp. Well, I mean, okay. So that you have things like your manly or your Fairchild, and you, they're going to have different responses to them. They're going to be a little bit cleaner. They're going to be a little bit crisper with the preamp. You have to remember, there's a couple things that you have to think about. Uh, and I just, just, I was just saying something along the lines of A to D, D to A. And that's this idea of going from analog, which is your source, you know, regular sound. And it's going down this line into this preamp. And then it's changing it to A to D, to digital, analog to digital. And it's converting. And that's one of the things that it's going on within all of these preamps that are out today. Uh, you can actually get a separate processor that's going to do this separately and get really, 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 really expensive conversion. Um, but most most units today have that actually already incorporated, our, our interfaces. Um, and our interfaces have digital audio conversion going on, uh, which takes A to D and then converts it from D to A so it comes back out through your speakers. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, most, most things that are out today actually have decent conversion. It actually sounds really good. Latency is almost completely gone nowadays. That's your lag. Uh, right, that's your lag. Um, so you don't really have to worry too much about it, but if you want to go top end, then yeah, you want to go down the route of actually looking at you know, a, a rack mount digital audio um, converters. Um, but then when it comes down to the actual preamp, that's, that's a little bit different. Uh, you can get a crappy, whatever it is, Behringer or everybody makes them. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to single out anybody, but, um, every single one sounds a little bit different. I just said Behringer. Behringer has more of a, uh, to me personally, it has a little bit more of a sterile sound, a little bit harsher of a sound. Um, I personally like Joe here, like the uh, Focus Right. I use a Claret, um, the Four Pre. Uh, at work, I use the uh, Eight Pre X, um, along with another the Octo Pre, uh, sixteen lines of, of input. Um, uh, you get more for what you pay for. It's going to sound better. You, you have your class A preamps. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of preamps, you get what you pay for. That's for sure. Does it make a huge difference? It doesn't make a huge difference, but it does make a difference. You can definitely hear the sound uh, difference between uh, a cheap preamp and something that's going to sound really good, like a Class A preamp. Um, preamps, they're a little bit funny. Uh, there's different kinds. Like I said, I have at work the 8 pre, which is 8 channels, so I can plug 8 different instruments in at the same time. 
Um, Especially useful for drums. Yep. Recording live drums, live bands. Yep. Uh, actually, I, yeah, a lot of people would say, well, why the heck would I want to use eight inputs? Well, that that's it. You would use it mostly for drums. And for anybody for uh, home recording, you know, having a drum set to record, um, most drummers are going to want to have eight inputs because you're going to have your kick, your snare, your two overheads, uh, maybe three toms. Um, uh, you can have hi-hats. Uh, you can have, like with your snare, you can have top and bottom. So one on the top and then one on your snares. Yeah. Um, you want a room mic too. Mm-hmm. You have room mics as well. For the back. Um, you can do uh, with a kick drum. You can do front of the beater and then the back of the uh, back inside the hole, and then you can have another one outside of the hole. And there's just many different ways that you can record drums. With guitars, you can do you know one on each speaker. Uh, you can do one in the back right. of the cab. Yeah. Um, so there's many ways that you can actually record any one of these instruments. Um, it's incredible and then, what. Good. Yeah. And then anytime you have more than one microphone recording a source, then you have to always take into consideration phase and making sure that your positives and your negatives, that they line up. You want to make sure that if you have a snare hit and you're recording on the bottom and on the top, that when the drummer hits that snare, that when you see it in your DAW, you match both, you zoom in real close to the wave file. You want to make sure that those two wave files are going with each other. If they go opposite of each other, <laughs> that's a bad thing because now you're when, going back to the idea of anal, A to D, D to A. When your speakers are pushing and pulling air, if you have that opposite thing going on, your speakers are being told different amounts of information. One is being, being told to push while the other one is being told to pull. So the speaker essentially sits still and does not make any sound whatsoever until you do what is called a flipping of the phase or flipping the polar pattern and now they'll actually push and pull at the same time. Uh, so it's extremely important that you know on any time that you record a source with more than one microphone that you are aware that phase is an issue. Uh, you have to make sure that everything's going in the right direction. Otherwise, you will get a strange sound or no sound at all. And um, there's no... There's no um, because we're working with like something like drums and you do have eight microphones going at the same time, there's no perfect, you know, okay, every single thing is going to be going because they're all hitting, uh, let's just say, overheads. Well, this tom over here is going to hit this microphone at a different time than this snare or this hi-hat is going to hit it. So there's no perfect alignment. Mm -hmm. And then what you do as an engineer is you would actually go through every instrument and you would flip the phase on every single pattern or every single instrument and you would listen with your ears to sound which one sounds the best. And you will hear a difference between all of those instruments. And cumulatively, um, they will sound the way you want them 
going through each and every individual instrument. I'm just, I'm thinking back to the snare drum. You know, it might seem like a lot of work to go through all this, but the benefit of all this, if you like the sound of a certain drummer snare drum, like we were talking about earlier, yeah, and he's got more of that that metal snare sound to it, that and you record the bottom, you're going to get a lot more of those snares on the underside. I mean, it it really changes the sound. Oh my gosh! To, to record from a different spot. I mean, the front of the microphone the front of the speaker on your guitar amp it sounds much different from the back and you know four inches back sounds different than right up on the speaker and Mm -hmm. over the side sounds different and it's sometimes combining these things can make you know the best sound for you yeah i've had one of the i i do a recording um class and I do have private recording classes with some of my students. And one of the most important classes that I get that moment of um, with any student is, is I will have them go through the process of hooking up, sure, multiple mics on a guitar, on a guitar cab, but I will have them, let's just take an SM57, and I'll have them pointed at the speaker cone and then I'll have them record, and then we'll do the same process, and I'll move the, the capsule of the microphone over by an inch or two, and then I'll have them record it again, and then I'll take it out just to the very edge of the speaker on the guitar cab and record it again, and then we'll record all, or then we'll go back and we'll listen to all three examples. And the facial expression on holy cow, I didn't realize that that much movement or even really that much movement because as you get closer to the cone, uh, the actual capsule of the speaker, the sound changes a lot. So even that much movement with a microphone on any given source is huge. It's huge. There's your EQ. That's where all of that comes from. When you place a microphone on a cabinet, you don't just throw up a microphone and be like, okay, let's record. That, that's not the way to do it. <laughs> you want to make sure that you spend time on that process of setting that microphone up on that guitar cab and spending a good half hour to an hour going through, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to set the microphone and I'm going to chunk away on just, you know, both a low power cord or a bunch of power cords and also a lead lick. Both of those are going to produce different information and I want to record both of those. So, okay, here we go. Chunk, lead. Cool. Move the microphone, go out to wherever your your, your amp is, go through the process. And it's, it is a pain. If you have two people, it's much better because then you can just sit there with a the guitar and have the other person, okay, move it by an inch, cool. Um, and you go through that process and you kind of go, okay, that's cool. That's where, that's where the mic needs to be. I like it right there where it's like halfway in between the, the rim and right where the capsule is, so like, like right there, perfect. That's where I, I like that sound. Go through that painstaking process, and all your EQ is done. Then you can like have just a little bit to do in post, and you're you're golden. That again, get it right at the source. Don't worry about fixing fixing it in the mix. 
do it in the beginning. It's, it makes a huge difference. Man, it's it's so awesome to see you get so excited about this. <laughs> this has like got to be your most. You're more passionate about this than any other aspect of yeah. music, I believe. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. I I I love the process of recording. It's 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 a love of mine, and I know the end result because everybody loves music. Everybody loves to listen to it, and it's that one guy. It's that engineer who's gone through that process of the love of making you as the artist sound the way you do. He, the engineer doesn't get any credit. I mean, he does. He gets a little blip on the CD cover and whatnot like that, but he's the one who does all the work. I mean, he's, and, and, uh, and it goes hand in hand. Obviously you as the artist have done tons of work as well, um, but it's a marriage between the two. And that's that, that marriage is extremely important. And the, the understanding of acoustics and how sound happens. I mean, for me, it's, I've never listened to music the same. And all engineers will know this at, out there that they'll say, yep, absolutely. You know, you don't listen to music the same anymore once you've gone through engineering and now you listen to an album or an engineer will walk into a room and all of a sudden they'll be like, ooh, the acoustics in here are kind of interesting. And they'll be like, Oh, cool. The reverb's kind of neat here. You know, it, it happens all the time. That's, that's my life. So yeah, I get excited about this a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, fortunately we're going to have uh, plenty more to talk about on this subject. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we could talk for, for days about this. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And we will, we'll, we're going to get into recording and dive in deep, whether it's more of the recording process, um, or we get into mixing, or we get into mastering. Um, we're going to get into all of this because it, it is a passion of mine, obviously, and it is important uh, for the whole process because most bands, yes, there is the live aspect, but the opposite of that is going to be the studio and making sure that um, we here at Fret Buzz try to help all of you guys. Um, prepare for that, whether you are a guitarist, drummer, bassist, whoever you are, that's, that's extremely important to kind of make sure that you know and are prepped for. <laughs> hey there. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the Fred Buzz, Fred Buzz the podcast. Right. <laughs> uh, we've got a Aaron's son here with us. Yes, this is Camden. Hey, <laughs> yeah, so uh, hopefully you guys learned something. I, I really enjoyed talking about this. And uh, yeah, as always, if you uh, if you have questions or comments about what we've been discussing, please let us know. Uh, our website is fretbuzzthepodcast.com. Um, we have lots more information up there. We're still working on the website, but... Uh, it's getting better and better. And if you have a topic that, or something within this topic that you would like to hear more about, please let us know. If you, if you or someone you know uh, would like to come on the show, please let us know. Uh, send us information about yourself and what you'd like to talk about. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter if that's a guitarist or an engineer or a professor or, yeah, or a luthier or yeah. a piano player or a drummer. Yeah. anything yeah there's a bunch of information out there that we can share 
and and it's important that we um, we share that information with you guys. That's 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 that's, <laughs> that's important. That's important for all of us to kind of be a community and share all this information. It's uh, I know for me, like I said, when I was younger, I would have loved to have this kind of stuff. So yeah, by all means, if you have any suggestions or want to share any of your comments or have anything to say about us and how, you know, ugly I am. Cool. Bring it our way. <laughs> yeah. leave, leave us a review. Yeah. Yeah. If you get the chance, by all means, please. Yeah. If you get the chance, stop over uh, at to iTunes, give us a review. Um, the more reviews that we have, uh, the better people can find us and we can help those people as well. We really would appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's been a wonderful talking to you and y'all have a great day. Yeah. Have a good day, everybody. We'll talk to you next week.